Let's see if you can, for the second week, find the book of Nahum. There's our, our test for today. Nahum is in the Old Testament. If you find Matthew, you're in the New Testament. You've got to back up. And start backing up kind of slowly, because Nahum's not that far before the book of Matthew. But if you find the book of Psalms, you've gone way too far, and now you've got to go back the other way. It's between Psalms and Matthew. You getting close? If you had a bookmark from last week, you had an advantage. Or if you have those little tabs on the side, you had an advantage too. Nahum, not not often visited, obviously, uh, yet very powerful phrases here in this text concerning the character of our God in the midst of wicked people. And what I share with you today, though the whole concept of wicked people would be easy for us to bring up in our thoughts, uh, our world is not the prettiest place to be concerning mankind and its ways, but we also would stop and reflect on the fact that we too are sinners, and those days, we pray, are are days that are no longer the case for us, but we once walked in our trespasses and our sins, and we are aware of that too. We live in a sinful land. We live in a sinful world. And as a result of that, we can easily focus on that, and we could all go home quite depressed. But my focus is on the character of God. The character of God in the midst of wicked people. And that's what Nahum is writing about here as we go through this passage. Um, I like to bring this before us today because we're in the season of thanksgiving. And we ought to be very thankful for the character of our God. We ought to reflect upon that character. That's what propels us to be thankful people. And so the great things that he has done for us, are evident, even though this world will not recognize it. We, his people, ought to. And that's what we're going to see as we go through this passage as well. Let's have a word of prayer, and then I'm going to take you right to the text in chapter 1. Heavenly Father, we bow before you today, so thankful for who you are. Your word is given to us, uh, the evidence that we need to believe, as we have heard in song this morning. But, Lord, we can look all around us and see the evidence of your greatness, of your power, of your mercy, of your love. We could look to our cross and see clearly demonstrated your great love for us. Uh, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are surrounded with the testimonies of your character. And we stop this morning and just say, thank you, Lord, for who you are. As we go into your word today, challenge us with it. Warm our hearts, draw us close to yourself. And if there be some, even among us today, who wonder about who you are or what you have done, they stand in some sort of doubt in one way or the other, may it very, make it very evident today who you are and why they should trust you. For well, we do trust you, Lord. And we thank you for this time. Use your word in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Last week when we approached the book of Nahum, I took you to verse number 3 to mark the first thing that Nahum writes about the character of our God, especially in light of his mercy. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Great in power, that's a great phrase. And you're going to see evidence of that all the way through the book of Nahum. But great in patience. The words we have here, slow to anger, patience, macrothumia, if you had a Greek text of the Old Testament, a powerful little phrase. But you know what's interesting, this word here, and the word that we were looking at today are the exact words that we have studied in the book of Galatians. When we talked about the character of the Holy Spirit and what fruit he is instilling with us, don't be too surprised that that's actually the character of God in the first place. And that's what we're seeing, some very similar words, and I'm going to make a point of that in a few minutes. But this God that we study here today is great in power and great in patience. And we've already seen how that is reflected in Scripture time and time and time again, and that's what I spent time with you last week doing. Today, the second characteristic of God I want to look at is in verse number 7. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. Boy, that's about as elementary as you can say it, and yet so profound when you stop and reflect on it. The Lord is good. We teach our children that some of the earliest prayers they pray at the dinner table start with, The Lord is good. God is great. God is good. You remember that little prayer? Some of you have said it. Maybe you still do. <laughs> what we talk about... The goodness of our God. This says the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. Now, something fascinating in this little text. I'll just start with this and give you some observations as we begin. And then build it into something that you can pack up and take with you. Alright? This little phrase, the Lord is good. It's a rather interesting construction in Hebrew grammar. It does this in Greek as well. Uh, English is dependent on verbs. You should know that. I think you do. We don't make many sentences without verbs, do we? The Hebrew and the Greek tongue can operate without verbs. It's a very interesting construction of words. And that is, is inserted because we need it in English. The Hebrews didn't. There is no is. There is, matter of fact, no verb in the phrase, the Lord is good. It just says, the Lord, good. Actually, the word order is even backwards. It says, good, the Lord. You say, well, okay, what's that mean? That means they just don't speak English, right? Well, it, it's an interesting construction. They, they call it technically a predicate nominative, which is big term to say this. That the, the phrases, as they set nouns and adjectives side by side in this way, they, they are identifying. They are renaming. They are uh, defining that subject that it is referring to. Matter of fact, I taught my students this over the years when we worked with this construction. And I told them, what you could do is just take the is out and put an equal sign in its place. Because that's the expression that it has for it. And actually, I was very pleased to find that in a reference book just the other day. So it felt good to find somebody else thought that too. But 
Truly, that's what it's trying to express to us. When you talk about good, you talk about the Lord. And when you talk about the Lord, you talk about what's good. And that's the idea behind it, because when we talk about good as far as we are concerned, you know, goodness in our department is very limited. It's limited. We, we, we're as good, you know, sometimes as, as we want to be. God is good. And there is no fluctuation in that character. How often is he good, folks? All the time. Does he ever diminish? Does he ever go down to like 95% good? Not at all. The Lord is good. Matter of fact, he's the source of good. The nature of the word implies that. When you want to find where does good come from, start with the Lord. He's the source of good. He, he, he is unchangeable. He's not limited. He's unbounded. These are words I found I found very interesting. When it comes to the Lord's goodness, it's an essential part of His character. It's, a, it's actually independent of everything. When, when you think of events, and you think of time, and you think of history, His goodness is not based on what happens down here. Our events do not make Him good. Our bad events don't make him less good. He is good. That's what the text is saying. Because he's changeless. And we start with that observation. Because not only is he good in character, he's good in what he does. And you could mark this. Everything he does is based on his character. And his character is good. So what does that say about everything he does? It is good. Now some things I do know, it's hard for us to reconcile in our minds. <laughs> it's a big term to try to wrap around. Nonetheless, it's true. God is good. We start with that observation and we add another one to it. Is this, he is safe to go to. He is safe to go to. He's a stronghold, the text says. A stronghold, a, a place of safety, a, a place of protection. Uh, you might picture a fortress here when you think of a stronghold. Uh, you might think of a refuge, uh, a place for protection, a defense. A definition would involve that place that has been fortified in order to protect against attack. I kind of think of this uh, mostly around these parts. We have our, our little uh, stronghold down here at the basement of the Christian school on those nights when they say, you better get to someplace safe. There's a tornado coming your way. And we all head over there to the basement of the uh, Christian school. And sometimes it looks more like a party than anything else down there. Meet with the neighbors and, and such. But sometimes it's a big concern. This last time we were down there was... Uh, Big concern when we had three of those little twisters heading out this way. But we go to a storm shelter, a place of refuge, a place of strength and defense in the time of, of trouble. My dad lives in southern Florida, right on the coast along Gulf of Mexico. And he has in his garage uh, giant metal sheets that are put over the windows when the hurricanes come by. 
And I remember calling him on several occasions during the midst of hurricane season, and, and he's got him up all around the house. He says, boy, it's awfully dark in here. Every window covered up with a sheet of steel to protect it uh, against the ravages of a hurricane. So we could picture that. You and I can picture that concept easily. We don't probably picture the idea of a battle quite as easily, although you've seen it enough on TV, I'm sure. <laughs> Especially in the, the battle scenes of, of medieval wars, uh, there would be the castle, there would be the moat, there would be the drawbridge, there would be a, a place, a stronghold that you'd go in for uh, protection against the enemy. Many years ago, I was in San Antonio and went and toured uh, the Alamo. You've never been there before. Uh, it's it's quite a um, well, quite a stunning little place. You don't go through there uh, saying much when you reflect upon the history of that place. And, and what I was especially impressed in was how was was how small it was, how small that place was. And I thought, wow, that was their stronghold. You know, earthly strongholds may protect, and maybe they won't. That's the nature of an earthly stronghold. It may or may not. But this sentence says the Lord is a stronghold. Now, he's a fortress in that. Now, I want you to notice what it does not say. It does not say the Lord has a stronghold. As if he says, hey, everybody, let's go over here and we'll hide out and be protected. The Lord has a fortress. It doesn't say that. It says the Lord is a stronghold. Do you see a distinction in the phrases? He is the stronghold. And what's especially noted here in the day of trouble. A stronghold in the day of trouble when there are old words, strengths, <laughs> distress afflictions, anguish. Uh, the Greek word philipsis is a neat little word. If you want the definition of philipsis, all you have to do is go home, find a vice, put yourself in it, and start cranking it. And once you start to feel the pressure, you got the word. It's a pressing in. Uh, somewhat relentless pressure. The, the Greeks use that a lot, and actually the Greek translation of this word is that same word, philipsis. But the Hebrews talk about it straight. You're you're hemmed in, you can't move, you're you're pressed in on every side. You know when you're in that spot, I if you're like me, you're immediately thinking, now how do I get out of here? Right? Where's the exit? How do I get out of this problem? We we squirm and we we, we try to move, uh, especially those of us who have issues with claustrophobia. You're already feeling it, aren't you? Uh, but we say, well, all I need to do is trust the Lord. Now, you know that's true, even though we say it in a cliché form. It's very true. The only safe place to go is where? The Lord is the stronghold in the day of trouble. Not plan two. He's the first we should go to in the day of trouble. Those are some observations I've made here. The second, or third maybe, I don't know. I think I'm on three now. Observation I also note from this very text is that he knows 
those who take refuge in him. Now this is a very precious, precious phrase. What a beautiful combination of thoughts. We flee to him for refuge. And yet he knows us. He knows us. Sometimes when we, I don't know, but sometimes when we think about trust, we, we kind of view it as a one-sided thing. It's what we do. We trust the Lord, and, and so we have to just trust the Lord, and we hope that maybe He's caught on to that we're doing that. <laughs> maybe He's noticed that we're trusting Him. Maybe, maybe he's, he's aware that we're trusting Him, and sometimes maybe we, we may even wonder, humanly speaking, does He notice? Is He aware of what we're going through? The Lord knows you, this text says. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Think of this. You run to Him for safety. You, you, you come His way. He knows who you are. He sees your trouble. He knows your trouble. He protects. But even beyond that, it's personal. It's very personal. You're not entering in a safe place without being recognized as belonging there. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Many times you find this in Scripture, and I'll just give you a simple example of it, but our relationship with the Savior is very, very personal. This isn't just religion. This isn't just some, you know concoction of man's thinking of, of what we would like God to be. But the scripture says he knows his own. He knows his own. John chapter 10, it speaks of Jesus as a good shepherd. And it says in verse number 3, To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. Do you think he knows your name? Do you think he knows how to spell your name? I was amazed in, in school how often the teachers did not know how to spell my last name. They always left off the U. Drove me crazy. C-O-R-T-N-E-Y. Said there's a U in there. There's a U in there. The Lord knows there's a U in there. He knows my name. And that's what it says. He calls them his sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he puts forth his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. And then in John 10, 14, it's, Jesus says this very clearly, very clearly. There's no doubts after you hear this phrase. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. He knows you. He knows you. There are no strangers in the Lord's family. None. There are no strangers in the Lord's refuge either. They come to Him because they know He is a safe place to go. They come to Him and He knows who they are. You could almost picture it there as he stands in the door. If you picture him as a fortress, he stands in the door and as you come to him for refuge, he says, Come in, I've been waiting for you to trust me. Those are my simple observations and yet they're going to take on great significance as we put them now into the context of this chapter and in, even in the nature of this book.
I want to go back to that phrase, the Lord is good. I told you we'd seen this word before when we studied the fruit of the Spirit. Now, if you're thinking, yes, I remember, that's the word goodness, then I've caught you off guard. It's not the word goodness. It's the word kindness. We say, but it says good. I know it says good. That's what the Hebrew says. The Greek Septuagint says the Lord is kind. You say, okay, kind. What, what, what's this? Let me remind you about kindness. One of the fruit of the spirits referring to kindness. Let me refer to this one more time. It's to do something necessary and fitting, being useful and serviceable to another as an act of goodness, excellence, and kindness. Kindness appears when everything else looks bleak. Remember it? I gave you some illustrations, and I don't think you have to remember these, but the very first reference to the word kindness in Scripture is in the story of Joseph. Joseph, in Genesis, way back in chapter 39, verse 21, Joseph, sold by his brothers to a Midianite tribe to be a slave, he ended up in the household of Potiphar in Egypt, he was there for an extended period of time as Potiphar's servant. His Potiphar's wife lusted after him, if you recall, and falsely accused him, and he ended up in prison for over two years. Any one of us living in that environment would say, boy, is everything against me or what? I've been sold, I'm a slave, I'm in prison, I've been falsely accused, and over his head, no doubt, was a threat of, of uh, execution. For there were others in that prison that were executed for lesser crimes. So there he is in jail for over two years. He's not at home. He's hated by his brothers. He's sold as a slave. He's accused of impropriety. He's put in prison. And yet, as bleak as all of that was... The Lord said this in chapter 39, verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. When everything looked bleak, the kindness of our Lord was shown. Second example I gave you was in the story of Ruth. You remember that precious little book of Ruth. How Naomi had gone through some very terrible times. Not only just in her personal life, but in the whole context of that world. It was about the most wickedest spot in the whole Old Testament. The time of the judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And sin was just running rampant all over the place. Very dismal time to have been anything spiritual. I can't think of a bleaker time in the Old Testament Naomi had a husband and two sons. If you remember, they were living in a famine. They decided to leave and move to a foreign land. There she became a widow, and she also lost both of her sons. She was left with two widowed, non-Jewish daughter-in-laws. And when she asked them if they wanted to go back, one of them decided to stay, and one of them, named Ruth, went with her. Returned with her to the land of Judah. Did not have enough money to survive on. They had to sell some property 
to do that. Uh, no food, so her daughter went out into the fields to collect food, just like all the other poor do. Remember the story? It doesn't get much bleaker. If you put yourself in their sandals, you would say, oh, this is terrible. How are we going to make it the end of the week? Naomi, matter of fact, changed her name to Mara, which meant bitter. Reflects what she had thought of the whole thing. But you know, even in the midst of that, kindness appears when everything looks so bleak. And there Naomi speaks to her daughter-in-law, when the Lord had opened up the doors and Ruth came upon the field of Boaz and brought home all that, that food that first day, and Naomi recognized not only that, but who Boaz was and all the arrangements. Suddenly she was calculating. <laughs> she was trying to figure all this out and how the Lord had just laid the path so wide open for him that she spoke of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness from me. I think that's a very sweet phrase there. And then if you remember, even later in the story, when Boaz is brought into the picture, tried living as a righteous and godly man in a spiritual pit. And that's what his world was like. It was just sinful all around him. And here's Boaz, an unmarried man. Boaz, older in years, we know that from the text, but also it would appear that there were no godly prospects on the horizon for him. People wonder, well, why wasn't he married before? Maybe there wasn't a righteous woman for him to choose from. And I can only imagine that the scene looked a little bleak for him, too, in that regard. And once again, kindness steps in, and he mentions that to Ruth, especially. Known to be such an excellent woman, how she... Uh, provided for her mother and her deceased husband. And once he found of his love for her, he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first, and not having going after the younger men. See, the word kindness kept appearing on the page. In some of the bleakest chapters of Scripture, we find kindness. Theologically, we talk about it there too, don't we? We talk about the fact that we were once foolish ourselves, Titus would say, or as Titus records, Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 3, verse 3, and these are his words to him. We were once foolish ourselves. We were disobedient. We were deceived. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We were spending our lives in malice and in envy and hateful and hating one another. Now tell me, does it get bleaker? But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. I love those words. Not on the basis of the things that we have done, but according to His mercy. According to His mercy. Same words you'll find in Ephesians chapter 2. I, I quote to you Ephesians 2 almost every week, I know that. If you don't memorize it soon, you better, because it's just going to keep coming up. Ephesians 2 says, And we were dead in our trespasses and sins, verse 1, in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, which is now working in the sons of disobedience. All we too, among them, formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, 
the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's the bleakest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, oh I love this phrase, you ready? It's right there in the text, verse 7, Ephesians 2, 7. This is why. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You are forever a trophy of God's kindness. God's grace. God's love. Throughout all eternity, all somebody has to say is, what does God's kindness look like? And we could point to you. That's God's kindness in action. That's what he does. So let's take that word. I know that was touch of review, wasn't it? You remembered all that, didn't you? Let's take that back into our text here in Nahum. It's the same word. It's the exact same thing. So it's not going to change. It's what God does when everything looks bleak. Notice, he's a refuge. He's a fortress. When there's trouble all around, pressing in on every side and hope seems to be gone, where are you going to go? The Lord is good. It's a stronghold in the day of trouble. And He knows those who take refuge in Him. Now, I'm going to stir one more thing into the context so you see it. The midst of wicked people. In the midst of wicked people. Nahum is writing about Assyria. Assyria, the nation that was warned once in the days of Jonah. Jonah went about there and and told them that the Lord was going to bring wrath upon them and they repented. Remember the story? We talked for a few minutes last week about it. But here, about a hundred years later, they are returning to sin with a vengeance. And the Lord's wrath is unparalleled in these verses. The tragedies of mankind do not compare with the vivid wording of the book of Nahum. When he starts to talk about uh, Assyria, this is what he says in verse 1 through 8. The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way. The clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither, the mountains quake because of him, the hills dissolve, indeed the earth is upheaved by his presence in the world and all its inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? 
Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good. Is that a funny place to read that phrase? Did his character change? No. Everything else is falling apart. Everything else is being crushed and destroyed. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those whom take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 intensifies. Chapter 2. It's like this. God says, okay, Assyria, get your army together. We're going to have a war. You ready? This is how it reads. The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress. Watch the road. Strengthen your back. Summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel when he is prepared to march in the cypress. Spears are brandished. The chariots race uh, madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall, and the mantle it is set up, and the gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away, and her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves, beating on their breast. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop! Stop! No one's turning back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there's no limit to the treasures. Wealth from every kind of desirable object, she is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees are knocking and anguishes in the whole body. And all their faces have grown pale. What a scene, huh? What a scene. If I recall correctly, what had happened in this particular judgment. Assyria and Nineveh particularly got a little proud of themselves, thinking, well, we will never be captured. Oh, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? You know what always follows that? We have that phrase we read in Scripture, pride cometh before destruction. They say, oh no, we can never be destroyed. The enemies have surrounded us so many times. They can't get in, they can't get in, they can't get in. They forgot about the river. A river that was set up just to provide water under the city and it flowed down through the... Do you know what happens when rivers overflow and your city foundations are built on the banks and the side of your wall collapses when you've got an army on the outside wanting in? It's shocking to those who thought it would never happen. It was a flood. And that's the very words the Lord used. Uh, The floods have come. They're washing through and stripping out the city. We've seen pictures of tsunamis in the news. You've got a picture now in your head, don't you? 
That's a picture of the wrath of the Lord. Let me ask you this. Is he still good? In the midst of that, is he still the stronghold for those who take refuge in him? Yes, he is. He did not change. Let's move to chapter 3. Just a couple of pieces here. Verse 1 through 3. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses, bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. Yah! That's not pretty. Let's find a better passage. Let's go to verse 11. You too have become drunken. You will be hidden. You too will search for refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are like women in, the, in your midst. The gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw for yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go to the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There, fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you like the locust does. Multiply yourselves like the creeping locust. Multiply yourselves like the swarming locust. You have increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locusts. Your marshals are like the hordes of grasshoppers. Setting on a stone wall on a cold day, the sun rises and they flee. And the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains. There's no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? End of book. Does that strike you? You're reading along and you say, uh, Where's the hope? Well, we had the hope. It was given back in chapter 1, was it not? In verse number 7. What were we called to do? Take refuge in the stronghold. Take refuge in the stronghold. Do you think that if there was one Assyrian in that city who turned to the Lord at that time, he would have protected them? Go back to Rahab in Jericho. The walls fell down, except hers. The Lord knows who takes refuge in him. He knows. This little thing that we have set before us today is based on a word, good. The Lord is good. I want to ask you just a simple thing this morning. Which side of the refuge are you on? Are you on the outside of it? Or the inside of it? When things are at their bleakest, 
Do you not know that the Lord is good to us always? Even then, He keeps us safe. He knows who we are. And I know some of us here in this room in the last week, the last month, have been through some very heavy things in their heart. Some of us in the last year have been through some very heavy things in our heart. And maybe it's looked bleak at times. Maybe it looks like, what's the answer? Is this truly the road we have to walk down? Is this what we have to face? Is this what we're going to go through? And you dread it. Have you been there before? You worry about the next day. You worry about the next test. You worry about what's coming down the road. You say, Lord, what do I do? What do I do? Stop. And remember, He's good. He's always good. Yesterday, He was good to you, was He not? Today, He's good to you, is He not? You want to guess about tomorrow's behavior toward you? He is good to you. He says, take refuge in me. I know you. I know you. And you will be safe. You trust in his character. So I, I suggest this to you this morning. Not just issues of trust. And you hear that message, don't you? You hear it loud and clear. But scripture says, when we enter into his presence... We should enter with thanksgiving. Sometimes it's hard to be thankful on circumstances, thankful on events, thankful on all these things that go on around us. But we must be thankful in His character. Thankful we have a refuge to go to. Thankful that we have a God who knows us. Thankful that He's good and always good. Always good to us. Heavenly Father, we come before you, acknowledging who you are, who you are. The events of these days are not surprises in your book, for you know the end from the beginning. The situations in our life are not surprising to you, for you know the beginning and the end of our lives as well. We come before you as those who have come to know your character. For us to stop and say the Lord is good is a good practice for our heart. A good reminder for our mind. A good strength and help in the time of need. To say that the Lord is good and as we sang this morning, blessed be his name. May it be the first words as we expect our, express our thanks to you. May they be the first thought in the midst of a day. Whatever comes our way, may we say the Lord is good and know that it's true. What incredible words these are that we stop upon. How simplistic and yet how profound. The Lord is good. Thank you for being who you are. Thank you that the testimony of this, this phrase is true in this room. In every life that is here today, we testify that you are good.
and we go from here knowing you're good still. Throughout this day, throughout this week, this month, the end of this year, throughout the rest of this life, our God is good. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.